This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Is it possible to lay claim to ownership of a dance? Is choreography intellectual property? How have shifting conceptions of race and gender shaped the way we think of dance, property, and ownership? In Choreographing Copyright, Race, Gender, and Intellectual Property Rights in American Dance, Anthea Kraut wrestles mightily with these questions as she presents the first book by a dance scholar to focus explicitly on matters of copyright and choreography. Combining archival research with critical race and gender theory, Kraut offers new perspectives in this cross-genre history of American dance. Professor Kraut's research addresses the interconnections between American performance and cultural history and the race and gender dancing body. Her first book, Choreographing the Folk, The Dance Stagings of Zora Neale Hurston, was published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2008 and received a special citation from the Society of Dance History Scholars De La Torre Bueno Prize for Distinguished Book of Dance Scholarship. Her teaching interests include American and African-American dance history, critical race theory, and methods and theories of dance studies. Dr. Anthea Kraut is Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Dance at the University of California, Riverside. We at the Dance Channel today are pleased and proud to have the author of Choreographing Copyright, Race, Gender, and Intellectual Property Rights in American Dance. Anthea Kraut, thanks so much for giving us some time this afternoon to talk about your new book. Thank you so much for having me, Takia. It's a real privilege. Okay, so let's jump right in. When you were working on the project, I know um, that this is something that you would have thought about, you know, with some care. Who would you say is the ideal audience for the work or who is the book for? Yeah, that's a great question to start with. Um, I I feel like at this point in my career, I am so happily writing for other dance studies folks. I um, uh, feel myself so committed to dance studies as a discipline. I feel like I owe so much to it as a discipline. And I feel like the questions that my fellow dance scholars are raising are some of the most exciting that I encounter in scholarship. So my primary audience is definitely uh, dance studies and other dance scholars. Um, and I would include, you know, uh, students and, and producers of, of dance studies. So th- that feels like my primary audience. I'm, I'm interested in sort of telling a story about the history of copyright for choreography to people who have some familiarity with, with dance studies. 
um, and, and telling a different story than, than one we might expect to hear, um, one that takes race and gender into account um, in, a, in a kind of primary way. Um, I, I am also, when I advise students, I mean, there's always the, I'm always pressuring them to articulate um, what, you know, what does, what can dance studies offer other disciplines? Because I, I don't think, I think even dance studies itself is an inner discipline and it has so many interesting intersections with other fields. So at the same time that I felt myself interested primarily in speaking to other dance scholars, um, I tried to push myself to think about how other people who are interested in questions about copyright, questions about property, might what might they take from this from this story? Um, and I think there's I think dance has so much to offer other disciplines. Um, I think anyone interested in how you know property intersects with the body um, might might be interested in this book. I think thinking about the body complicates our assumptions about how certain rights work and how certain struggles for certain rights have worked. Um, so I, I think my secondary audience in that sense is, is anyone interested in ideas about property and U.S. cultural production more, more broadly. That's very helpful. Thank you so much. Um, I know that this is not a first project. I'm familiar with your scholarship, and I know you, you know, as an educator in the field as well, so I'm wondering, given your work as an author and as an educator, what does the book signify for you personally at this point in your career? Well, that is such an interesting question, and I guess I'm not sure if I should answer it on a personal level or a scholarly level. So I guess I'll do both. So on a sort of intellectual level, my first book focused on one figure, Zora Neale Hurston, and one series of performances in one decade, the the dances that she staged in the 1930s. Um, and this book was a chance to pick up on some of the issues that that came up in the course of that project, questions about, you know, does, does Hurston count as a choreographer? Who gets to be considered a choreographer? Um, how does authorship work in dance? Um, and what are the racial politics as well as the gender politics of that? And so it was a chance to sort of push those questions further and think about not just authorship, but ownership, and then think about a much broader temporal span. Um, so to, to take that question back um, into the late 19th century and move all the way up to the 21st century, that was a big challenge for me because the first book was so micro in terms of what I was looking at. Um, so there was, there was a sort of a chance to go deeper into those questions, but also to um, be more expansive in, in thinking about um, those questions. So that for me, um, intellectually, was what it, what it represented. Um, personally, if it's okay to answer it that way, it was really daunting to write a second book. I felt like the first book was based on my dissertation. Um, so it was pretty clear what the first book should be about. It should be about what I wrote my dissertation on. And I had already done most of the research for the first book because I did that as a graduate student. Whereas the second book 
was just so wide open. I could just choose whatever I wanted to research. And then there was, and that was both exciting and daunting. Um, I felt like I had a lot more flexibility in terms of, you know, which little nuggets I wanted to go chase down. Um, and so, so that was, um, again, exciting and also just a little bit too open-ended for me. But what, what felt different was that I felt like the argument was, which took shape in the process of doing the research in a way where in the first book, I felt like I did all the research first and then tried to figure out what I wanted to say about it. Whereas in the second book, I, I, felt, I felt an argument taking shape as I was in the research process. And, and then that kind of helped shape what I wanted to write about, um, what kind of ar argument I wanted to make. Um, so the, the two felt more um, like they developed in tandem for the second book, if that makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. Um, and I really appreciate you um, talking about the challenge of the second project and sort of patchworking it together. Um, I'm sure that the size and scope of this current work has got to feel in some ways massive compared to your first text. Um, I did want to kind of pick up there and ask, you know, one of the things that I really love about the book is the way that you shape questions of ownership and authorship through an intersectional critical dance studies lens that really considers race and gender. And mm -hmm. while I really appreciate that in the in the text, I was wondering if you could share with our audience why you felt it was maybe particularly important to think about race and gender in your exploration of dance and intellectual property? Yes, that's another great question um, that I really appreciate. I, I, it, it became clear to me in doing the research that it was impossible not to pursue an intersectional approach. So one of the first things I realized as I started collecting examples of dancers who had pursued copyright protection for their choreography is that um, they were mostly women. So I kept encountering women in the in this history. So, you know, early modern dancer Loie Fuller and um, modern dancer Hanya Holm, ballet dancer Agnes DeMille, those were the names that first popped up. And so it's it, that's, that's not a surprise to anyone who's familiar with dance history and knows, you know, the sort of uh, leading role that, that female choreographers took in shaping modern dance and concert dance in the U.S. Um, but as, as I was encountering that, I, I mean, so that made it clear that, that, that there was something going on with gender here. Um, but as I was doing that research, I was also really influenced by some really important critical race theory particularly the work of legal scholar Cheryl Harris, who has an influential article out there called Whiteness as Property. So she argues that whiteness itself has functioned as a form of property in, in the U.S. And I found it to be a really compelling argument. And I, it became clear to me that you couldn't really understand the efforts of some of these white women um, without asking how their status as women intersected with their racial privilege. Um, so I, I think, I, I mean, I, that relates to another goal of the book is to, to racialize whiteness. So to think of whiteness not as just unraced or the unmarked, but to think about how whiteness itself is 
a powerful racial formation. Um, so I, I felt it was really important to understand how, how these, you know, so the, the earliest sort of main characters in the story were these white women to understand how race and gender intersected in what they were arguing, what, what they were claiming, what kind of rights they were claiming. And I guess then to flip it back, I think um, by the same token, you can't fully understand how, how racial pr privilege shaped their efforts without understanding some of the precariousness of their position as women on the public stage. Um, so, you know, why did they turn to the language of rights to assert a kind of power over their, over their dancing? Um, what, what did it mean for them to be women doing that? And how was there a sort of precariousness to their position because they were women? Um, and um, especially when you, when you look at the legal history of copyright for choreography, it, it's also becomes really evident that the law has not always been receptive to the idea that what female bodies produce is deserving of any kind of protection. Um, so there, it was, it, I think because of um, what I was reading and what I'm, what I've been influenced and informed by, and because of the cases themselves, it just seems like race and gender, and of course, always crosscut by class, um, was, was really the only way to understand, for me, the only way to understand what this, what this struggle to assert intellectual property rights protection um, was about. And, and how um, they, you know, they were trying to mobilize racial privilege to overturn patriarchy and um, that kind of complicated, um, I, I mean, again, just that complicated intersection as um, giving a much fuller and much richer understanding of what these power struggles were about. Now, I really appreciate you taking the time to answer that because these questions about ownership and what belongs to who um, show up in my own classes, and I'm sure in, you know, the classes of other folks who are teaching and talking about dance. You know, my students have questions about, you know, what happens when dance if you take, oh, something like the choreography for Thriller, you know, what happens when mm -hmm. that becomes a part of a public domain? Or how does, you know, these video sharing sites like YouTube and Vimeo and Snapchat and Vine complicate these notions of ownership um, and authorship as we think about dance. So, you know, as they continue to wrestle with those questions, I'm just really glad that we have your book to help them sort of situate those questions historically and to think about them not just in terms of sort of the dance text or the movement text, but also the bodies out of which those texts are produced and how that becomes implicated in the question of ownership. I really, I'm so glad that you've given this project to the CEOs. Oh, that's, that's very nice. I know, I feel like there's so many um, current applications. I feel like a new one crops up like every week that um, something new is circulating on the internet that, um, you know, the choreography is just circulating in ways that it didn't before. And exactly as you're saying, it raises questions about is it is it public domain? Um, is it collectively authored? Who, who who has a stake in it? And um, 
I mean, what really drives the project is like, what kind of anxiety does that produce, right? What kind of anxiety does the circulation of dance produce? And how can we understand that exactly as you're saying, both historically and through a race and gender lens? Because I think, I mean, my, my tendency is to see that anxiety as always already um, racialized, if not also gendered in class. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, I one of the things that I really love about the book is the pictures. You have some great pictures in the book. Um, but oh, thank you. I wanted to know. I wanted to know from you what would you say are some of the most distinguishing features of the project? Um, well, actually, I will say thank you for saying that about the photographs. Um, for anyone who is working on a book, tracking down. Re photographic reproductions, and then the whole process of getting permissions is way more time-consuming than you would ever imagine. Um, so it's nice to know that, that, <laughs> that, that that's noticed or that, that makes a difference. So I guess, um, I, I guess I would say a couple of the distinguishing features are, one, um, I think using legal archives to to understand dance history um, is, is one of its sort of distinctive facets. Um, I, I've, it was really exciting being able to turn to, to, you know, the Copyright Office and to these legal cases to try to tell a different story about U.S. dance history. And it, it became clear to me that the law is a really rich site of information um, about dancers um, I, you know, as I mentioned in the book, dancers don't spend all of their time dancing. Um, they're not always in rehearsal or in performance. And one of the things that they intersect with in their lives outside of the actual activity of dancing is the law. Um, so, I, and I, I, there's, I think there's a lot of, um, there, there are different perspectives we can get um, on what kind of, on the work of dance, on how dance, how dance was a profession and how, what kinds of, you know, what was at stake for people in, um, in making dances and um, making money off dances and not making money off dances. And so I, I, I guess I hope one of the things, I think that's one of the things that does distinguish the book, um, but I also hope it's something that, that other scholars will, will take up to sort of think about other ways in which dance and the law intersect and what, what can we learn that's, that's fresh and new about um, dance as as culture by by turning to the law, and then I guess um, maybe another maybe more minor distinguishing feature is um, in in order to tell the story I wanted to tell about the history of copyright for choreography, I had to look across different dance genres. So I think a lot of dance texts tend to focus on one genre, modern dance or ballet or jazz dance. Um, and the, the case studies that I, that I look at um, really cross and those boundaries and also kind of reveal how those boundaries are constructed themselves and how those genres were kind of always um, bumping up once again, one, bumping up against one another and intersecting with one another. Um, and so the, you know, the book covers everything from early modern dance to jazz dance to tap dance, to, to dance on Broadway, to ballet. Um, and I, I think, um, I mean, I, I think in sort of deep down, I'm influenced by 
by Pierre Pordia's notion of this field of cultural production. So I think all of these different dance genres are um, kind of always competing for one another, competing with one another for position within an artistic hierarchy. So um, I think it's hopefully refreshing to have a book that is a cross-genre history of U.S. dance. You know, it's exciting because I think about um, with that last point that you made about the range of genres that are discussed, what's exciting to me about that is the range of contexts in which the book might be taught or engaged. You know, it could be in a class dealing with virtually any of those vocabularies from historical or dance studies perspective, but it could also be, you know, I would love to see this class, this this book, for example, taught in a, a, a legal class, you know, a law context that was wrestling with questions of copyright and intellectual property. It just, it really lends itself to a range of different um, disciplinary contexts, or even thinking, too, about how um, contemporary con conceptions of race and gender are implicated in the conversation we have about performance and ownership. And that just, it just, such broad application for how people might enter the, the, the book, and I'm just really, really excited about it. Um, I know that creating a project like this can't be easy, <laughs> and you've touched on that a little bit, but were there any particular challenges you faced in putting the project together, and how did you, you know, address that so that now today we have the, the book here to engage on its own terms? Um, oh, so many challenges. Um, I guess one of the biggest ones was um, just trying to trying to understand copyright law, which um, is an enormous area of law. And I am, you know, by no stretch of the imagination, am I a legal scholar? Um, and I, I, I think beyond my sort of situatedness outside of. Um, law school, I think copyright law is actually a very gray and muddy area of the law as it is. Um, so copyright laws shift. So for example, like the 1909 copyright law and the 1976 copyright laws um, had very different requirements for not only what could be copyrighted, but how you copyrighted it and what was the term of copyright protection. So there are these ambiguities within the law and then there are these shifts across time within the law and um, I find myself still somewhat baffled um, by by copyright law at times um, and I again I think I I to pick up on your last point I would love for I would you know be so happy if legal scholars are interested in this I'm, I'm not sure it meets their um, standards for for sort of legal analysis because I'm so much more interested in the sort of cultural studies qu questions about about the power struggles around the law than I am in analyzing like what the law should or shouldn't do or um, the nitty gritty of um, a particular sort of legal case. Um, so so that has been one challenge, um, but actually really exciting too. It's so much fun to sort of all of a sudden dive into this completely new body of literature. Um, and I will say legal law review articles are insanely long. They write like 80 page articles. Um, so it, again, so it was sort of very exciting to um, immerse myself in another area of, of scholarship 
um, even as that was one of the biggest challenges. And then I think the other challenge was really an archival challenge, which was also actually probably the most most exciting thing to me is trying to track down these little nuggets that um, are are elusive that you're not even sure are there. So really what was so hard was that I have been equally interested in sort of the successful and the unsuccessful efforts to assert copyright protection in dance. And it's very hard to, to search for examples of failure in, in the archive. So, you know, how do I, how do I find copyright requests that might've been turned down? Um, you know, I was the kind of thing where I, you know, turned to help from people who worked in the archives, went to the archives myself, did a lot of searching, but there's, um, you know, there's first of all, no systematic way to search for it. I, 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 you know, I say in the book, like, this is not an exhaustive history. I am sure there are some really interesting cases that I've missed. And primarily because there's no systematic way to search for every, any, everyone who may have made a claim, a, a copyright-like claim on a dance at some point in U.S. history. Um, but then some of it was also, um, you know, I would stumble across, like, as I say, the book kind of got its start when I came across this rumor that this African-American blues woman, Alberta Hunter, had copyrighted the Black Bottom. That was so interesting to me. And there was... I tried so hard to track that down and there was no, there was no quote unquote proof of it. Um, so, you know, it became as interesting to me as a rumor as it would have been if it had sort of, if there had been a aha moment where the copyright office, where there was some sort of evidence of it in the copyright office. But what was hard was to try to figure out when, when was I done trying to pursue that? When, when, I had, when had I exhausted sort of every possible avenue, um, there's no way of turning over every single stone, but sort of at what point do you say, okay, I can't find that. And the same thing happened with, um, this is I think in a footnote in the book, but there was, I kept coming across this rumor that, or this claim that Bill Bojangles Robinson, the famous tap dancer had tried to get a patent on his stair dance, and I kept contacting various archives in various parts of the country to to see if they had any records of this, and nobody ever turned up anything. Um, so the sort of archival challenge of these, the sort of, I mean, I'm so interested in what exists in the sort of cracks and the margins of the archives, like not just the big players who are easy to find material on, but the the um, the the more marginalized subjects who also interacted with the law, intersected with the law, but didn't leave these more sort of massive accounts, more sort of um, trackable records. Um, those people really excite me, and I really want to tell their stories too. But sort of being able to do that is limited by by what you can find. So that was a challenge that um, was very exciting, but also um, difficult to feel like a sometimes difficult to feel like I had done my job as a researcher if I ended up not finding what I wanted to find. You know, I really almost I feel like my brain exploded over here when you were talking about the difficulty in the archive with finding, you know, examples of failure or examples of you know, attempts that were unsuccessful. There's a way in which I think even in our retelling of dance history that we focus on 
success. We focus on breakthrough moments. We focus on spectacle and the virtuosic in a range of ways and how Mm -hmm. that sort of narrow perspective even shapes our notions of what counts in the archive, let alone what mm-hmm. anybody would go look, let alone what anybody would go look for, mm-hmm. you know, and, and even in terms of what we're modeling for students around the kind of research that is possible to do. That's just, oh, when you said that, I said, well, she just cracked that one wide open. Thank you for, <laughs> you know, bringing that perspective forward because it's really important. No, thank you for saying um, that. I feel like there's, oh, I just, yeah, just to pick pick that, pick up on that, I feel like the real, the beauty and the privilege of being a dance scholar is that there's so many stories to tell, right? There's, there's so many, there's, you know, there's already the well-known, there's the well-known figures in dance history, but there's so much more to say about them. But then there's also, as you were saying, there's so many unknown players in dance history. And, what can we learn about them and how will that change what, what we know? I, I, it's, I feel like it's so exciting to be in a field where there's, there's so much work to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really, it's a great time to be in dance study. Um, what has been for you sort of the biggest surprise in terms of the response to the book so far? Well, the book, just came out. So I don't really know what the response will be, I have to say. Um, you are one of my first readers. So I'm, I have to say, I'm kind of overjoyed that, <laughs> that, that there is um, a positive response based on, based on your desire to talk about it. Um, I, so I don't have any real sense of how it will be received. Um, I, I, I know that people seem excited about the idea of copyright. Um, I I feel kind of just lucky that I struck on a topic that seems like it touches a nerve for a lot of people. I didn't pick a topic that because I thought it was hot. I just sort of went with what was exciting to me. Um, but as you were saying earlier, I think these issues of, of ownership and circulation have really intensified in this digital age, although yeah, you know, I'm also very eager to point out that these are not new questions by any stretch. You know, Louie Fuller in the 1890s had her dance being copied by this chorus girl, Minnie Bemis, and, you know, she had the same anxiety that I think people do today when, when their work is all of a sudden going around the Internet um, without, without credit. So, I, I, you know, I, I guess I'm, um, I'm, I'm happy that it's sort of intersecting with um, – current hot topics. Um, I, I guess just in the course of researching it, I was surprised by how few people knew that you could copyright choreography. It was, you know, relatively late in the U.S. It wasn't until 1976. But um, actually, I'll tell this little story because you mentioned the thriller example. At one point, I wanted to, I was interested in that, and I called up Sony, uh, the Sony studio because uh, for some reason, I figured out that they, um, I think they were Michael Jackson's label. And I was curious about um, the choreography being reproduced. And the woman I talked to on the phone actually told me that you could not copyright choreography. So I think there's a sort of, <laughs> there's some ignorance out there um, that choreography even, you know, rises to the level of copyrightability. 
Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm excited to see what, what people, how people respond. Um, and I, I, yeah, and what they make of my argument. I love it when people are so matter of fact about things. <laughs> you can't, you can't copyright choreography. Well, actually. <laughs> exactly. That is so funny. Well, Anthea, thank you so much for giving us some of your time. I wanted to ask, do you have any projects that are sort of just beginning to brew? Are you working on anything right now that might be of interest to our audience? Oh, that's nice of you to ask. I, I have this new little kernel of an idea that is just in its, like, fetal state. But I, I've become really interested in the idea of dance doubles or dance stand-ins um, in, in, in Hollywood films, so people who take the place of stars in um, to do the dance work. Um, and I, I, I guess I think I'm sort of interested if the copyright project was a, largely about the people who were trying to prevent or control the copying of their dances, I think I'm maybe interested now in the perspective of the people who were the copies. I'm, yeah, I'm interested in what kind of stories we can learn about dancers who served exactly as precisely as copies. And I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm interested in continuing to pursue, I, again, I'm so drawn to these, you know, invisibilized subjects to, to use Brenda Dixon Godchild's um, really groundbreaking term. You know, what, what can we learn about those invisibilized people? Um, and, and how does it change our understanding of dance history? And I think in the case of doubles, I'm interested in how race and gender are produced across bodies or what it means that it takes more than one body sometimes to produce a single seemingly racially unified image. Um, but I will say that project is going to require a lot of archival sleuthing that I don't know when I'll have the time for. I'm, I have an administrative position in my department now that is really time consuming. So it may be years and years in the making. But right now, that's the sort of little bubble of an idea that is, that is exciting to me. You know, I really appreciate you for bringing that up. The two things that it made me think about immediately was, you know, when I was growing up, one of the movies that made me want to be a dancer was the film Flashdance. And how for years, I didn't know that Jennifer Beals had a dance double at the end, you know, that, that big solo that gets performed at the end of the film. For years, you know, I just thought that was Jennifer Beals being an amazing dancer. I had no idea that she had a body double or that her body double had been a man, actually, for some of the right. choreography. Or yes, crazy legs. Think, yeah, yeah. And it also made me think about how a few years ago, I remember there was some dust up with the woman who was the body double for the film Black Swan. That's right. Because there was, you know, all this press that was sort of lauding Natalie Portman for her authenticity as a ballet dancer and not even mentioning the length to which the body double had to be really invested in that project. And we've talked, I've talked a little bit about this with some of my students who are, of course, uh, many of them very enamored with certain dance films, you know, the all of the step up films, the uh, remake of the movie the remake of the movie Fame, film center stage. 
and not thinking about the ways in which it's, in some ways, hours of invisible labor that goes exactly. into crafting these, Im- these images that they fall in love with and that they really hold up as being, you know, models of what it is that they themselves might want to do. So it doesn't matter. If you ever get that project done, just know that your friends here to dance <laughs> channel will totally be happy to talk to you about those ideas if they, if and when they should come to fruition. Well, I will work towards that goal. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for giving us some of your time this afternoon, and I really appreciate you for taking the time to speak with us today. Oh, it has been such a joy, and again, a, a real honor to, to speak with you, Takia. I think I'm, I'm so proud to be a dance scholar with, in the field with people like you. Oh, you just made me, you just made my whole day. <laughs> Thank you again. You've been listening to an interview with Anthea Crumpton, author of Choreographing Copyright, Race, Gender, and Intellectual Property Rights in American Dance, published by Oxford University Press. The book is available now at local booksellers and online retailers. I'm Takia Nuramin, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the New Books Network Dance Channel. Thanks for listening and keep on reading.